Today we are in the Gospel of John, the, the fourth chapter, and and I, I have to be honest with you. I mean, there are a number of chapters of the Bible that uh, God continually leads me to that have really, uh, I wouldn't say wrecked my life, but have transformed my life. And this is one of those chapters, John chapter 4, this encounter that Jesus has. And I would say it is so appropriate for us where and we are. If you, if you are, are not wanting to take a step with Jesus because you're, you're saying, you know what, I don't know about those Christians. I, you know, uh, um, I, I don't know sort of where they stand with gender or with race or in worship or politics. I, I totally get that. I understand that. Uh, this chapter is for you. If, if you have someone in your life who, who you've been praying for and wondering, you know, uh, I want to see God move in their life, this chapter is for you. If, if you have questions about Jesus, like, like, who is Jesus? What is Jesus like? Like, like, like who is he as a, as a person? Uh, man, this chapter is for you. Because we see beautiful things revealed, slowly revealed throughout this entire chapter. And Jesus does this through a conversation. Does it through a conversation? A conversation. You know, it's interesting. In the Gospel of John, there are no parables. Uh, a parable is a, a story, like a, a story that has spiritual truth. Um, Luke's gospel has a number of parables, right? the parable of the, of the prodigal son, right? Uh, the parable of the lost coin, all these things. In John's gospel, there are no parables. Jesus doesn't really tell a lot of stories, but what Jesus has, he has individual conversations. You know, if you take the four biographies of Jesus, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are over 40 individual conversations that Jesus has. 40 individual conversations that he has with folks. 23 of those 40 conversations, people initiate the conversation with Jesus. Right? It's the rich young ruler, the, the rich young ruler goes up to Jesus and, and initiates this conversation. You know what? Hey, yeah, how can I have eternal life? I'm doing all these good things. What other, you know, where am I? And how can I get even better? Initiate conversations. And then there's nine conversations. Nine out of 40, where Jesus initiates. Where Jesus wants to know. I just love this about Jesus. He loves people. He loves people. He loves religious people, even though they don't love him sometimes. He loves people who never go to church, who will never be in church. He loves people with questions. He loves people who other people have written off. Jesus loves people. And he loves having conversations with people. He loves just 
with others. He loves showing interest. He's interested in what's going on with people. Jesus just loves people. And we see in this chapter, because in John's gospel, there are about five huge conversations. We spent about a year, no, we spent a couple of weeks on one. And in chapter three, there's a guy named Nicodemus, this serious religious follower who comes to Jesus at night. And, and they have this conversation, right? He comes to Jesus. Jesus doesn't go to him. Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night. And it's, and it's through this conversation, right, that, that Jesus talks about being born again. And then we have John 3, 16, right? For, for God so loved the world that he gave his, his only son, right? He didn't, come to, he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And it's in this conversation that we have this tremendous truth. And then we go to John chapter 4, and we're at the other extreme. If, if Nicodemus, if, if you are a serious follower of God at this moment, and you're listening to the presentation of this gospel, like, yeah, Nicodemus, he's one of us. And then we get to John chapter 4, and this woman from Samaria, like, ah, why is Jesus wasting his time with her? Why is Jesus even wasting his time in Samaria? Why is this even in God's plan? Well, let's, let's explore that together. Let's explore this chapter together. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a, I'm going to read a portion, and then I'm going to teach a little bit, and read a portion, teach a little bit, because if we read the whole chapter the whole conversation, we might get lost. So I want to just address a couple things as we go on. And so in John chapter 4, verse 4, uh, this is what we have. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. Okay, let me pause there. That's very important. Sorry, slide person. Uh, I'm, you just stay right there. Okay. So Jesus had to go through Samaria. It's a very interesting Phrase, John says what it means in Greek is that he needed to go through Samaria. See, the most direct route, he was headed to Galilee, and the most direct route was through this area called Samaria. Hey, that actually rhymed, right? Yeah, yeah, the area called Samaria. The problem was that if you were a faithful and righteous Jew, you did not go through Samaria. Even though it was the most direct route to Samaritans, what they were called the half-breeds. They were half-Jews and half-Gentiles. Samaria and the Samaritans were created sort of uh, after the northern kingdom and around the, in the 8th century before Christ came about. In the northern kingdom, the, after David and his son Solomon sort of left reign, the, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then in 721, the northern kingdom was overthrown by this group called the Assyrians. And so a lot of people left that kingdom. There was a remnant of Jews who stayed, and they 
intermarried with this group called the Assyrians, who were Gentiles, who, who were non-Jews. And so with that, Samaria was, was created. And when that happened, they, they created their own place to worship, their own temple. They actually had their own copy of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That's all they had. They didn't adopt the, the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. They had their own religious system, like I said earlier, that was a mix of Judaism and some paganism as well, some idolatry. And so if you were a Jew, a faithful practicing Jew, and you saw on your itinerary, your Google Maps said you have to go through Samaria, you would say redirect, redirect, redirect. Because if you went through Samaria, you were going through an area that was dirty, that was unclean. And there's no way that you would ever associate with these half-breeds, these half-Jews, these Jew and Gentiles. But not for Jesus. He had to go through Samaria. It's very interesting when you, when you make your way through, you, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and right after John, we have the book of Acts, right? In the book of Acts, we have this verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Many people call it the, the, the missionary mandate. But Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is speaking to his disciples, says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until what the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And this is what Jesus says. Then you'll be my witnesses. And the Greek word there is, is martyr, and we get martyrdom. That, that there you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. And as you make your way through the book of Acts, what you see is that the ministry starts in Jerusalem. And then it extends to Judea, which is sort of like the state. And then it goes to Samaria, this this God-forsaken place. And it goes to the ends of the earth. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. But we see it right here in John chapter 4. What Jesus is saying it's sort of what Jonah did not believe. When God came to Jonah, he says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah did not go to Nineveh. He redirected, redirected, right? He went 180 degrees in the other way. And almost led to the destruction of all these folks. And then this whale swallows him up. And the whale spits him out. And what does he do? He finally succumbs and he does what God tells him to do. And he goes to Nineveh and he gives one of the most pitiful sermons I've ever read. He gets to Nineveh and says, Jesus loves you. No, he didn't say that. He gets to Nineveh and says, God of salvation. You know what happens? Revival breaks out. That's all he does. There's no stories. There's no slides. There's no video. He just says this, boom, revival breaks out. Everyone's like, yes. And we end the book of Jonah, and he is upset with God. And why is he upset? Because God loves the Gentiles as much as he loves the Jews. See, Jonah was a nationalist. 
Jonah believed that God was only going to, was only for the Jews. And we start to see this throughout the scripture and we get to Jesus and he said, of course Jesus had to go to Samaria. Of course he was not going to follow all the traditions. Of course he was not going to bypass Samaria. Of course he had to go to Samaria. Why? Because the mission is global. It's for the whole world. It's for all people. It's for all areas. Of course, Jesus had to go through, the, through Samaria. We see this throughout, right? The, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness. We would not want to go there, but he goes there for us. He surrendered to the Father's will. He's about the Father's mission. He goes to the cross. He surrendered to the cross. He's raised on the third day. Jesus goes to a place. He crosses cultural boundaries. He doesn't, he doesn't buy into religion. He's all about his father's mission. He had to go to Samaria. And so we see this, right? Paul writes this in Romans 10. He says, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all. Richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can, they, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet. There's a sense of Jesus stepping into this idea of being sent. He's sent by the Father. And he's going to places and going to people that we would never imagine. But praise be to God. That there were men and women who were sent to rescue us. And maybe today is that day that you've been called here. You're watching. You're tuning in now or later. That God has sent this video to you because he wants to tell you how much he loves you. How he wants you part of the family. How you're one of his kids. And he comes after us. I also think about how this passage affects us, that we're to be sent. That there's some areas in this city right now that no one is going to. That's for another church. Those are some other people who believe in Jesus, but not me. But Jesus had to go to Samaria. He had to go. And verse 5 says, when he came to a town in Samaria, it was called Sychar. I've been to Samaria. It's a modern-day Palestine. Sychar is the modern-day town of Nablus, which is on the West Bank. If you've been watching any news, or maybe while you're trying to find gas, you've watched the news. That was a bad joke. Um, 
I almost ran out of gas this week. That's another sermon. But uh, right now, Sychar, the West Bank, is the hub of the conflict and the war. A young boy was murdered this week in Sychar. There are bombs being fired and missiles being fired and shots being fired in Sychar. It is where Jesus went. This is where Jacob's well is. It tells us here, right, in uh, verse 5, so Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. I mean, there's a lot of information here. And if you're not familiar, if you have been walking with the Lord for a while, you're reading this going, who are all these people? Well, Jacob, Jacob's one of the fathers of, of the Jewish faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's through Jacob's descendants that we have the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's tw- twin brother was Esau. Jacob was not a really nice dude at the beginning. When they came out of the womb, he's holding on to Esau's heel. His nickname is Heel Grabber. And we see this. He steals the birthright from his brother, his, young, his older brother. And God blesses that, which still confuses me. He blesses that. And he changes his name to Israel because Jacob wrestles with God. And what we believe is that this is some land that that God gave him later on. And so he had this well. And this well was somewhere in Palestine, modern-day Palestine. And what's interesting is, is that all those who are listening to this gospel know Jacob's well. Jacob's well. Well, in the Bible, we don't really have a particular well called Jacob's well, but we do have a lot of wells. And we do have a lot of well encounters and a lot of well experiences. In Genesis 24, Abraham. Abraham doesn't want his son Isaac marrying any of the women of where he is. That's very interesting. That's a whole other sermon Danielle will give. But Abraham doesn't know. She would say, I'm going to stay away from it. But it's very, I don't know why. So, so he sends a servant to this to go find a woman, right? And the servant goes to a well. And wells, I'm not talking oil wells. I'm talking like, like the wells for this place is where all the water is, right? But it's, it's, it's more than that. It's where everyone gathered together. It's where the animals would stop. They were like landmarks, right? They were like travel plazas there with vending machines and all this stuff. It's where everyone met. It was like the social scene, and we have all these interesting encounters in the Old Testament about all these wells. And, and a lot of men and women meet each other at the well. It's sort of where Abraham's servant meets Rebecca, and that's where they get Isaac. Jacob meets his future wife, Rachel, in Genesis 29 at a well. Moses meets his wife, Zephora, in Exodus 2 at a well. It is at a well in Genesis 16 where Hagar 
She runs away, and she's sitting here, and she's weeping near a well, and the angel of the Lord meets her. And so, as a father of God is a follower of God is listening to this account, what they're saying is, oh my goodness, something big is about to happen. Like, like the scene, like this is a big scene. Like, like, oh my goodness, Jesus had to go to Samaria. And there is Jacob. Oh, I know about Jacob and Jacob's well. Oh, and all the well stories. And all of a sudden, what something big is going to happen. I mean, there are certain places for you where you can, you can go back in your history. And if you're walking with Jesus, you can say, I remember that moment and that place where God met me. It could be at camp. It could be at Young Life camp. It could, it could be in a church. It could be a Sunday school class. It could be in the car. There are some places here on earth, and our Celtic friends call it, it's when, it's when heaven comes to earth. But it's at these moments here on earth that we get to experience heaven. I remember a couple years ago, I, I took my son. We were in Texas, and we went by my university, Baylor University, and we started walking to campus. I had been there like in 30 years, and I was like, Oh, I remember this. I felt like I was back in college. Oh my goodness, look at that building. Where did that come from? And like all these moments, you walk around and you say, hey, here's, I remember something happened here in this place. You know what's very interesting about this place, this place right here? You know, it was never ever a warehouse. It was never used as a warehouse. It was built for a warehouse, but it never was used as a warehouse. If you know the story about this place, what happened was people would gather in this place and they would pray for our city. Hmm. That's how it was used. It was like a prayer gathering. It was worship. And all these people from all these different denominations would gather and they would just pray for God to move in our city. Right here, they would do that. Yeah, right in front of me, right here, they would do that. And then from that, a church started. And then they, they moved out. Another church came in. And that church was not about praying for the city. Guess what they were about? They were about foster families, foster kids. They were about identifying kids and making sure that they were in Christian homes. And when they got to a point, God then called them to go emerge with the church up on Western Avenue. And it was right at that moment then we moved in. There's something, I think, about this place that God wants to move, that God wants his people to gather. It's not, not a hokey theology. There's just something that God just wants to do here in this place. And we're the next inhabitants and there's a, I feel like sometimes there's a responsibility. Are we doing what you want us to do? That God meets us in these certain places. And if you're listening to this, everyone's thinking, well, Jacob's well. Oh, my goodness, Jacob. Oh, my goodness, one of the patriarchs. Something big is going to happen. There's this huge moment. And we read, and Jesus was tired. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well and was about noon. And some of you underline that in your Bible is saying, Jesus knows how I feel every day because I'm tired. 
I'm tired. We affirm that Jesus is fully divine. We talked about this. Jesus is all God. He's 100% God. He's not 50 or 80 or 95 or 97.8. He is 100% God. At the same time, he is 100% human. And when we get to heaven, I'm going to figure it all that out. But we have this human moment that his body would give out. And we'll see later on in the gospel, Jesus is hungry. Well, his disciples leave. We'll see this in a second. Disciples went to go get food. But Jesus, he's tired. The journey, he's tired. And so he had to find a place to sit. And so he sits at this well. But some of you are thinking, "Uh uh-uh, Jesus has a plan. And we'll see it at the end. God is setting this whole thing up. This is all being orchestrated by God. That God is sovereign, that, that there are moments in your life, that there are moments in my life where I can look back and say, God put that together. And that we do need rest. The Sabbath is for, it's a day of rest. To rest and the worship, and enjoy God. But what's interesting, it's noon. Because what we know from the scriptures is that people went to the well, they went in the morning, and they went at night when it was cool. Nobody went at noon. It was hot. There's got to be a reason that this, that this woman is going to the well at noon. What we know is that there were many wells closer to her. And she could have stopped at other wells along the way, but she doesn't. Because maybe, because maybe she was willing to make the extra journey because she knew that this hallowed ground and she needed to meet with God. The Greeks look at time and they have these two words for time. One word is chronos. We get the word chronology. That means just day in, day out. If I said what time is it, you would say it's 10 something. That's chronos time. But they have another word for time. And in the Bible, you'll see the word fulfilled. Jesus will use it later on about time. It's called kairos. I call it the big moment time. You know, we have moments day in, day out, but like graduation, that's a big moment. When you, give your, when you gave your life to Jesus, that's like a, that's like a kairos moment. That's a, that's a pregnant, that's a big, that's a moment above all moments, right? And this is going to be a kairos moment. We see in verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? 
I wrote in my journal, Jesus, you are lazy. Get up and give her, give her a drink. I don't understand why you're asking her. Are you that tired, Jesus? That's what I wrote. Then I said, that's pretty cool. Yeah, there's 339 recorded questions of Jesus in the gospel. All the gospels put together is about 340 recorded questions. Her Jesus initiates. Will you give me a drink? You know, I... I read this quote, it says, a leader who leads with questions will often be 10 times more effective than a leader who only leads by telling. A leader who leads with questions will often be 10 times more effective than a leader who only leads by telling. I'm assuming that Jesus knows fully what's about to happen, who's about to show up. But he doesn't lead with condemnation. He doesn't lead with judgment. He leads by inviting her, by investing in her. I wonder how many relationships could be unlocked if we just asked questions and stopped telling. Jesus says, will you give me a drink? The neuroscience about questions is fascinating. They say when you ask a question, it activates the entire brain. And when you ask someone a question, then what the neuroscience tells us, that the way the brain is, is all going, that the only thing they could focus on at that moment is that question. And so Jesus says, will you give me a drink? And in verse 8, it says his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the and Samaritan woman, verse 9, says to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is to ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman says, you have nothing to draw water. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman says to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. I have to keep coming here to draw water. <laughs> Jesus is saying that there are physical thirst. 
And the physical thirst are just cues of a deeper thirst that all of us have. You know, when someone is addicted to drugs or pornography or all sorts of things, that they have to go on detox. Because drugs and alcohol and and, and porn and shopping, all this stuff, right? It's just a symptom. It's above the surface. And once you... Once you stop that that activity, then you can address below the surface. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you keep coming to this well, and you're coming to this well because you're thirsty. I'm not here to just quench your physical thirst, but I'm going to offer you as something that's going to quench your thirst. Your soul thirst. I am the well, Jesus is saying. And the water that I give, and those who drink from me, they will never be thirsty. Never. You know, when we, when we look to the world and all the trappings of the world and everything, everything that we offer, everything the world offers, it will not quench our deep thirst. It will always leave us thirsty. Work harder, make more, find my identity in my children and their happiness. If only I could be happy today, it will never satisfy. But we buy into it, I do. I just had this or that, or if I could just do that or lose more, if I could do this, and then then I'll be. What Jesus is saying is, no, when you look to me, I will quench your thirst. And you'll leave satisfied. Then he gives a promise that, that when we do that, that, that when we start with Jesus and we, and we drink from the well of Jesus and that, and that we give our life to Jesus and we find him and that my ultimate satisfaction is in Jesus first and everything that he offers, he says this, that we'll become a well ourselves. And it says that a spring of water will well up and it will produce in us and water will flow out. Water will gush. that you'll become a well. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will come and live in you. And that, and that you won't have to keep coming to this well at noon and traveling all that way. No, you just come to me because my Spirit lives in you. And that wherever you go, that my Spirit is with you and it's welling up in you and let it well up in you and let it flow out through your words and your actions and your mind. Let others see the life that is in you and that you are fully satisfied and richly blessed and content in me. And so Jesus in verse 16 tells her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus says to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband 
The fact is you have had five husbands and the man that you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. She's honest. And Jesus probes. He's going after this very difficult issue. He's basically saying, I wrote in my journal, ouch. This woman has been trying to be satisfied in human relationships. And has left her thirsty. It's left her alone. It's left her coming to this well at noon. You're living with someone right now and you're still having to come to this well. You know, when we look to people to give us what God can give us, we'll always be thirsty. We'll always be thirsty. Francis Chan uh, tells a story in his marriage about how he came home one day and he was looking to his wife and, and he got really ticked off at her because he was looking for these words of affirmation from her and she didn't give it to him. And so he went off. And then he, upset, regrets, goes, and he's sitting there going, what was that about, God? And God said, you're looking to your wife first rather than looking to me. I love you, Francis. I love you. And it's only out of the love I have that you can love your wife. If you keep looking towards your wife and wanting her to, to satisfy you, then you'll never find satisfaction and joy in me. That's a hard word, the true word. Because only then can we fully love someone when we have experienced the love of the Father first. And in verse 19, she says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. That's a pretty good observation. Our ancestors, verse 20, worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place that we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, verse 22, worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks Verse 24, underline this. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And I wrote down, of course, of course she's going to push back on worship. Of course she's going to dodge the subject and bring up this worship battle that's between Jews and Samaritans. 
And Jesus delivers these powerful words about worship. Why? Because worship is broken. And Jesus has come to restore our true worship. That worship is not about my feelings. Worship is all about God. And there are moments that we worship the practice of worship rather than worshiping God and God alone. Let me think about this. He, he says, he says, you worship in the spirit and truth, that there's moments that we can worship in the spirit without the truth, and there's moments we worship with the truth without the spirit. That's how John Piper puts it. He says, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy. And a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty, frenzied, and cultivates shallow people who refuse rigorous thought. But the true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional, who love deep and sound doctrine. Their strong affections of God are rooted in truth. They're the bone and the marrow of biblical worship. You know, we're on this track of building a worship culture here, and the worship culture, I call it the JC culture, where Jesus Christ is the focus of our worship. But also the J stands for joyful. Now, there needs to be some emotions that... that that we talked about this on Thursday nights in our worship meeting, that David prayed, what? That, that God would restore the joy of your salvation. That, that there needs to be some type of emotion, some type of joy, better than a guy hitting a home run in a baseball game, but something that gets us off our seat and praise be to God that God came after me and rescued me, and by His grace I am saved. I have no authority at all, but His Spirit lives in me, and I am a son, I am a daughter. There's some emotion behind that. But there's truth. Some of us know the truth, but there's no emotion. Some of us know the emotion, but it's not grounded in truth. And I don't want our worship to be grounded in the spirit and in the truth. And so then we get the greatest revelation so far in the gospel. In verse 25, the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. In verse 26, after 22 verses of a conversation, it started with, hey, can I have a drink? Jesus then makes himself known. He says, Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I wrote down and said, well, you, you've had some moments up to, to this moment to reveal yourself. Like you could have done it to your disciples, but you did not. You didn't tell them you're the Messiah. Oh, Nicodemus comes at night and you could say, hey, thank, thanks for coming at night. This is who I really am. Now, don't tell anybody else, but this is who I am. But he doesn't. Where does he make this great revelation? When does Jesus make this revelation that I am the Messiah? Where does he do it? 
He does it in Samaria, in this God-forsaken place. And he does it to this woman that no one wants to be around. He does it at noontime. In the most obscure place that God's Son reveals that he is the Messiah. Why? Because God has come in grace. That there's no barrier that God can't bust through. Because he loves you so much. If it's grief or politics or gender or I'm never coming back to this church, whatever has happened to you in the past, whatever it is, God loves you so much and he's busting through there to say, I am here in your most God-forsaken state. When you are looking to quench your thirst, I am your thirst and I am here and look to me. I've come to you. You don't have to come to me. I've come to you. Let us pray. It's just absolutely amazing that you come to us. This woman was not expecting this encounter with you, but that Jesus, you went to her, you went through Samaria, you sat by this well. And we'll see in a couple of weeks how she responds to this conversation. But your grace, you love us. You accept us. That's not all the things we can't do enough to earn your love, that you have poured out your love through your grace. You offer us. You are there for us. And maybe today, God, we're feeling, I'm not worthy. I feel like there is no way that God could ever be with me, that the questions I have are too big for him, or the things I've done, that there is no way God could ever welcome me. Oh, my goodness, God made this woman and your response to her and this conversation unlock us to say yes to you today. And maybe, Lord, this COVID has put us in a dark place and a deep place. And God, we are trying to find the emotion, God, but we are just so empty and we're so depleted. Will you fill us with your Holy Spirit today? And will you remind us you haven't forgotten us and that you satisfy every thirst that we have. And rather than looking to this world, that we'll look to you and that we will exalt you and we worship you in spirit and truth. And may that be so, God. Oh, Holy Spirit, have your way. Satisfy us, and may you be our chief satisfaction. And when we come to you, God, we realize you've already been there for us. You died to death for us. You went into the depths of hell, and you conquered that. There's nothing, Lord, There's nothing that can stand in the way except us. And so, Lord, be with us. Satisfy us. Fill us. Quench us. Reveal to us who you are. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.